The Darklands podcast explores Pacific Northwest true crime and all that it entails. You are the expert in you. If at any time you find the content distressing, please use your judgment and either skip ahead a few minutes or move on to a different episode. If you use mass transit as a main mode of transportation, you have likely seen the whole spectrum of human behavior. Much of the time commuting by train or bus is routine, the mundanity interrupted by small annoyances like a jostle from a fellow passenger or someone talking too loud on their phone. Other times the daily grind is broken up by witnessing incredible acts of human kindness or the unease of someone experiencing a mental health crisis. Rarely is the daily commute disrupted by a shocking act of violence that leaves two people dead and another critically wounded. But that is what happened on May 26, 2017, when three bystanders intervened to try to stop a man who was verbally assaulting two teenage girls on a crowded car of the Max Light Rail in Portland, Oregon. In just a few short minutes, an act of bravery and kindness by three men would end in devastation. Much of the event would be captured in clear detail by surveillance cameras on the train and by cell phone videos by multiple witnesses. It is an incident that would forever scar all of those that bore witness to the vicious attacks, those that rushed forward to lend aid to the injured and the dying, and one that would weigh heavily on the heart of the city. I'm Miss Abby B, and this is Darklands, Season 1, Episode 2, Murder on the Light Rail. Portland's Metropolitan Area Express, or MAX, is the fourth busiest light rail system in the United States. It consists of five rail lines, color-coded, that connect downtown Portland with the six sections of the metro area and suburbs like Gresham, Beaverton, and Milwaukee, as well as the Portland International Airport. The MAX has a daily ridership of about 121,000 people and is popular because it avoids area traffic and costly downtown parking fees, and it's super quick. Sometimes trains will come about three minutes apart during the peak commuting hours. On the afternoon of Friday, May 26, 2017, 23-year-old Talisha Namke Meche, known as Tilly to family and friends, boarded a somewhat crowded eastbound Max Green Line train. The Green Line connects downtown Portland with southeast Portland, and Tilly was heading from his downtown office to his recently bought home. He was carrying a Tupperware container that had held his lunch and was talking on the phone with his aunt, Beatrix Van Olfen. The seats on the train were all occupied, and Tilly was standing. In the course of their conversation, his aunt could hear a lot of shouting and screaming, and Tilly informed her that there was a man engaged in a racist tirade on the train, and that he had to go because he couldn't focus to talk to her. His aunt advised him to try not to get involved in the situation, but said that maybe he could film what was happening with his cell phone so that he could give it to the police later. Tilly told her that he wouldn't get involved and that he loved her and would call her back. Ricky Best was also taking the Green Line train home from work that day. He was a 53-year-old Army veteran who worked as a technician with the City of Portland Bureau of Development Services. He was heading home to the suburb of Happy Valley where he lived with his wife, Mihan Best, three teenage sons, and a 12-year-old daughter. 
Also on the train was 19-year-old Micah Fletcher, who was commuting to work at a pizza joint after finishing up classes at Portland State University. He was listening to music on headphones that he described as being pretty dampening to external sound. He had been riding at the front of the train when he became aware of a ruckus loud enough to penetrate his headphones. He would report that the first clear thing that he recalled hearing was some reference to Saudi Arabia. This particular afternoon was sunny and gorgeous, and friends Destiny Mangum and Walia Muhammad were out and about trying to go to Clackamas Town Center, a popular shopping mall on the east side of Portland. 16-year-old Destiny and 17-year-old Walia were both young black women. Destiny was born and raised in Portland, and Walia was a Somali immigrant. Walia wore a traditional hijab head covering as part of her religious beliefs. The two had gotten turned around and realized that they needed to take a different train to get to the mall, so they got on the green line heading east. They were sitting together visiting when the train pulled into the busy Rose Quarter Transit Center. It was here that a large ponytailed man, who would later be identified as 35-year-old Jeremy Christian, boarded the train. Jeremy Christian is an avowed white nationalist and white supremacist who was known to be prolific in his racist and anti-Semitic rants on social media. The Portland Mercury posted an article in 2017, pretty close to the time when these events would happen, that showed images of Christian at an alt-right rally wearing an American flag as a cape and carrying a baseball bat, which he allegedly threatened counter-protesters with before a police officer took it away from him, but did not arrest him. He can also be seen giving Nazi salutes at the same rally and shouting, fuck all the N-words. It is important to note that Portland is a hotbed of clashes between white supremacist alt-right hate groups and left-wing anti-fascist and anti-racist groups. Portland and Oregon as a whole also has a deeply problematic history with regards to race and systemic racism that is very present today. And I say this as someone that loves my city, but that love is complicated and it doesn't make me blind to what is ugly and harmful in the so-called whitest city in the United States. And I want to take a moment to acknowledge the role that race and racism plays in this story, both as the very literal epicenter of the violence unleashed by Christian, but also as an atmosphere that permeates the very air that surrounds those of us that live here. Sometimes it's a pungent odor that we are unable to ignore, and others it's like a lingering subtle scent that we can choose not to acknowledge if we want to. It is here, around us, all of the time. I'll focus more on the history of Oregon and Portland in the context of race when I cover the murder of Muligata Sara in a future episode, but I just wanted to make sure to provide some context for the crime that I'm covering right now, because it's not an event that happened in a vacuum. Another thing to know about Jeremy Christian is that he was not unknown to the police. He had a record for armed robbery and kidnapping and for being a felon in possession of a firearm. And on Thursday, May 25, 2017, less than 24 hours before the events discussed here unfolded, he had harassed another woman of color riding the Max. At about 10 p.m. that Thursday evening, Demetria Hester was riding the Max Yellow Line when Christian boarded the train and began loudly going off about his being a Nazi and how he hated black people, Muslims, and Jews. Demetria told him to shut up and that nobody wanted to be harassed because of their race or religion. And that's when Christian began directing his tirade at her, 
a black woman. She reported that he responded with, fuck you, bitch. I can say what I want. Free speech. And you can call the police. I've been to prison before. You can call whoever you want to call. I'll kill them too. This went on for over 12 minutes, all of which is documented on max surveillance footage. 12 minutes is a terrifyingly long time to have someone screaming abuse at you on a fairly empty train, wondering if it's going to escalate further. And Demetria said that she definitely felt that he was going to attack her. When the train reached her stop, Demetria got off and saw that Christian also disembarked. She reported that she knew as soon as he got off the train that something was going to happen to her, and it did. Christian approached Demetria and reportedly said, Bitch, you're going to get it. She, for her part, busted out some mace and sprayed him in the face. And somewhere in the middle of this, he launched a full 32-ounce bottle of Gatorade at her, hitting her in the face and giving her a black eye that was swollen shut and which can be seen on photos taken after the event. The conductor of the train had notified both Portland Police and TriMet, the agency that oversees the MAX trains, that there was an altercation on the train and there were two TriMet supervisors on the platform to follow up with Demetria when the train stopped. One of these supervisors, Andrew Garcia, said that he heard Christian say something to Demetria that sounded like, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you, right before she maced him. Bradley Hansen, the other TriMet supervisor on the scene, reported that he asked Christian if he was the person involved in the incident on the train. Christian reportedly told him, get away or I'll stab you. Christian, who you'll remember, had a face full of mace, then went to wash up in a nearby public fountain. A Portland police officer arrived, and Andrew said that he pointed to Christian, who was still washing his face in the fountain, and told the officer that this was the man who had assaulted Demetria. He said that the officer told him that he had to hear that information from Demetria herself. The officer began to speak with her, and Andrew noticed that Christian was starting to walk away. Andrew said he told the officer, you might want to tell him that he's not free to go, to which the officer told him he was waiting for backup. Andrew never saw Christian again until the next evening when his face would be all over the local and then national news. The reporting officer, Neil Glasky, would testify that he was alone and requested backup because he was understandably concerned about the state of mind of an individual who had allegedly just assaulted someone. He said he noticed Christian walking away and so got into his cruiser to follow him, but Christian was out of sight by the time Glasky had gotten to the patrol car. What's interesting in all of this is that in writing up his report of the incident on May 25th, Glasky marked none in the box where the report asks if there was bias involved in the crime, saying that he didn't believe that a bias or hate crime had occurred at the time of his investigation. And it makes me wonder if this is maybe just because it was a preliminary report while he was still gathering facts or something else, because I really don't understand what constitutes a bias or hate crime if hurtling racial slurs while threatening someone with death and throwing a bottle at their head doesn't. And I'm not saying that to be facetious. Maybe I just don't have a deep enough understanding of bias crimes, and anyone that wants to fill me in is welcome to do so via my email. Okay, back to the events of Friday, May 26th, less than 24 hours later. Destiny and Walia realize that they are lost and get on the green line to head east to Clackamas Town Center. 
Tilly is talking to his aunt on the phone. Ricky Best is getting ready for a weekend at home with his family, and Micah Fletcher is listening to music while heading from class to his job. The train stops at the Rose Quarter Transit Center, and Jeremy Christian gets on board. Almost immediately, Christian launches into a verbal assault of the two young women. As I said in the introduction, there are multiple videos documenting both how vile his tirade was and how loud and threatening his attack was. Many of these videos were used in Christian's trial and are available on YouTube and in the Oregonian newspaper coverage of the trial. Christian was literally screaming at the girl, calling them racial epithets, yelling, fuck Muslims, go back to Saudi Arabia, and telling them that they should just kill themselves. He did this while staring right at them with what they described as blank eyes. Destiny and Walia report that they were terrified and that distressingly, they felt like no one was doing anything as the attack continued on for several minutes. Despite there being emergency buttons at various locations on the train, no one made a move to push one of them. Even worse, they said that there was another white guy standing behind Christian saying yes and nodding emphatically to every racist and bigoted thing that came out of his mouth. A witness testified that he heard the girls ask Christian to leave them alone, to which he replied, I should cut your fucking heads off. At some point in the middle of this, there are reports that the conductor of the train came on the intercom and told whoever was causing the disturbance that they needed to get off the train. This is not exactly helpful or an immediate solution as things were progressing because the train was moving between stops and there was no way for either the young women to exit nor for Christian to exit. Christian's attack became louder and more aggressive as Destiny and Walia tried to put distance in between them and him by moving to the back of the train. This is when Tilly, Ricky, and Micah, three men who had never met each other, nor the young women, stepped in to try to de-escalate the situation. What happened next was quick and chaotic, and I've pieced it together the best I can from multiple videos, reported testimony, and articles quoting the witnesses. While Willie and Destiny fled through the train to get away from Christian, Micah, Tilly, and Rick positioned themselves in between the girls and their abuser. Tilly was filming the man on his cell phone and telling him that he needed to get off the train. Ricky was trying to talk him down, and Micah remembers yelling at Christian, Shut the fuck up! You can't talk to kids like that! Christian continued screaming about free speech and liberals, and at some point Christian hit the phone out of Tilly's hand and Micah, in the chaos, thought that Christian had actually hit Tilly. Micah would later testify that he was worried as things escalated because he saw Tilly as this tall, thin guy holding a Tupperware container that looked like he was unprepared for a physical fight. While Micah, who has autism, reported that he was the subject of intense bullying while growing up, including being physically assaulted almost weekly as a middle schooler. He knew his way around a fight. Micah says that Christian pushed him and then Tilly, and that is when he grabbed Christian by the collar and flung him away from Tilly. In many of the videos, you can see Christian jump up, screaming in Micah's face, daring him to touch him again. Micah pushed Christian back down in a now empty seat, and in cell phone footage, you can see Christian rise out of his seat and pull a knife from his pocket, holding it down by his right thigh. The train was getting ready to pull up to the next stop at the Hollywood Transit Center when Christian started swinging, and in videos, you can see that split second, that pause in reactions when other passengers on the train register what they are witnessing. In one, you can hear Destiny Mangum 
screaming, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, and screaming in the most horrific way that I've ever heard and hope to never hear again. Micah testified that originally I thought that he had punched me. I realized that there was blood on my fingers and I thought, that's odd. And then I realized there was blood on my shirt, a lot of it. And then I realized that it was coming from my neck. Immediately after slashing Micah, Christian turned and plunged the knife into Tilly's neck, pulling it out and stabbing him again. As Tilly collapsed into a seat, Ricky Best moved towards Christian, who then shoved Ricky backward into Tilly and stabbed him before stabbing Tilly a third time. At this point, the train erupts in horror. Walia and Destiny run off the train, leaving behind their belongings. They see Christian get off on the platform and thought that he was coming to kill them, so they fled in the opposite direction that he went. Passengers began rushing to the aid of Ricky, Micah, and Tilly, and what follows are moments of heart-rending acts of humanity in the middle of unfathomable despair. Marcus Knipe, a veteran and employee of the Department of Veterans Affairs, was standing on the platform at the Hollywood Transit Center with his family as the Green Line train arrived. He stated that you could hear screaming as the train rolled in, and when the doors opened, people came running out, and that is when Michael Fletcher stumbled out covered in blood. The two locked eyes, and Marcus eased Micah to the ground and began applying pressure to his neck with a child's jacket that a bystander had loaned him and a baby blanket. He reports that as this was happening, he saw Christian barrel off the train and shoulder a black man yelling at him, Do you want some too? Micah believed he was dying, so as what he thought was his last act, he called his mom to tell her that he loved her. Marcus Knipe, who was caring for Micah, had been helping him breathe and keep his jaw and neck muscles as stable as possible. He asked Micah to let his mom know that he was hurt, but not to let her know how bad it was, because he was worried that if she got frantic, it would be really hard for Micah to continue staying calm. So Micah told his mom that he loved her, and, this is so bittersweet and pure, he asked her to call his work to let them know that he would not be able to make it in that day. Morgan Noonan, another Army veteran and former Army medic, who had treated soldiers with combat injuries, was also on the train during the altercation. He casually knew Ricky best because they were frequent commuters, and having both been veterans, they had some common experiences that they would talk about on some commutes. Noonan had originally thought the altercation had turned into a fistfight until he saw the blood erupting everywhere. Noonan said he locked eyes with Ricky best as he helped to triage and coordinate passengers that were tending to the injured. Noonan, who had seen his share of catastrophic injuries, stated that he knew that both Tilly and Ricky were not going to survive, and that he was sure that they knew it too. He testified, quote, a human being knows when they've been mortally wounded. You see it in their eyes, their behavior, end quote. There was no way to save Ricky Best. As bystanders frantically applied pressure to both Tilly and Ricky, Morgan said that Ricky's chest wound was so devastating that, quote, waves of his blood were running down the aisles towards me. It was lapping down the aisles, so I knew that every time his heart beat, he was bleeding to death, end quote. Ricky Best was dead by the time that paramedics arrived on the scene. Rachel Macy was one of the many passengers on the train that had witnessed Christian's verbal assault. Rachel is American Indian and testified that as a woman of color, she was terrified and didn't want to draw attention to herself as he screamed racial slurs. 
She was one of the bystanders that rushed to Tilly's aid, ripping off her tank top to use it to staunch the blood pouring out of his neck. Tilly was still able to speak and told Rachel, I'm dying. She tried to comfort him, praying with him and repeatedly telling him that he was not alone and that people were trying to save him. She recalls telling him, what you did was a total kindness. You are such a beautiful man. I am so sorry the world is so cruel. She continued to work on him with other Good Samaritans until medics arrived. As the medics loaded Tilly onto a stretcher and began to carry him out, he looked at Rachel and said his last words. Tell everyone on this train that I love them. Tilly would succumb to his wounds shortly after being transported to the hospital. All of this, this insane spectacle filled with the pathos of human cruelty, human kindness, and unimaginable tragedy, played out in just seven minutes. Seven minutes that it took for the train to travel from the Rose Quarter Transit Center to the Hollywood Transit Center. Jeremy Christian had fled the scene on foot into the Hollywood neighborhood in northeast Portland. He was soon captured in an access road between Providence Hospital and Interstate 84, where he threw his knife at a police car. While in the back of the police car, Christian said, I just stabbed a bunch of motherfuckers in the neck. Just punk-ass motherfuckers. Get stabbed in the neck if you hate free speech. I can die in prison a happy man. I stabbed those two motherfuckers in the neck, and I'm happy now. I'm happy now. I can rest easy. Christian was arraigned on Tuesday, May 30, 2017, charged with two counts of aggravated murder, attempted aggravated murder, first-degree assault, two counts of intimidation, and three counts of unlawful use of a weapon. Micah Fletcher, stitched and bandaged, was seated in the front row of the viewing area. Christian continued his rants throughout his short arraignment, yelling, Get out if you don't love free speech. Death to the enemies of America. And you call it terrorism, I call it patriotism. The packed courtroom was immediately locked down, and shouts from observers in the hallways included things like bigot and murderer. Christian went to trial in January 2020, nearly two and a half years after the attack. In addition to the original charges, enhanced charges for bias crimes were added, as were charges related to the intimidation for his verbal assault of Willia and Destiny and for his crimes against Demetria. His trial started off just as dramatically as previous encounters with Christian had been, with him uttering, You guys ready to smash Portland's fairy tale? Hate crime. Christian's defense strategy would include that he was not guilty because he was engaged in self-defense and would also raise issues relating to his mental health. One mental health evaluator found that Christian suffered from PTSD, from his stints in prison, and that he had anxiety. There would be testimony that he had sustained a head injury while younger that may have contributed to his violent nature. The trial was about four weeks long, and it was rough. I can't imagine being a juror for this case. Multiple videos of the attacks were key to the prosecution's case, and they were played over and over again with many witnesses' testimonies. The defense would both subtly and overtly go after witnesses and victims. One defense attorney would question Demetria Hester about her racial justice activism. Demetria, remember, was the woman that Christian had assaulted the night before the deadly attack, injuring her by throwing a full juice bottle at her face. 
The defense brought up the fact that she had testified before the Oregon legislature and spoken to multiple media outlets promoting hate crime legislation in the period after her attack, insinuating, I don't, I don't know what, that she was trying to gain some recognition after being assaulted by a man who would go on to murder two and gravely injure another person less than 24 hours later. I honestly, I don't know what the end game of that questioning was supposed to be. The defense especially went after survivor Micah Fletcher. Defense attorneys have a job to do, and their job was to try to save their client and to do so by trying to make a case for self-defense. I've had moments in my life where I thought that it might be interesting and valuable to work as a defense attorney, especially as someone who's deeply committed to issues of social justice and to ameliorating racial and class disparities in our criminal justice system. But researching this case cured me of that whimsy once and for all. I understand the role of the defense, and it is super important in our judicial system, but I just don't think that I could do what it takes to be effective at the job required. The defense would put a witness and a psychologist on the stand to make the case that Christian was acting out of fear for his life when he stabbed Tilly, Micah, and Ricky. They would claim that Micah's actions in confronting Christian were like throwing gasoline on a fire and contributed to him snapping and stabbing the three men. However, there were multiple reports that others on the train had tried to quietly and calmly de-escalate Christian while he was screaming at Walia and Destiny, but these actions did not keep Christian from continuing to scream and threaten to cut off their heads. Also, Micah thought that Christian had hit Tilly when he knocked his cell phones out of his hand. All of this is to say is that Micah and everyone else on the train had to make the best decisions they could as things rapidly unfolded in less than seven minutes. So even though it is the job at the defense to do their best to make their case, I don't feel comfortable armchair quarterbacking the decisions that Micah made in a crisis situation while trying to protect two teenagers and the tall, skinny man that he thought had been hit. The defense would also raise the fact that Micah was known to be involved in several left-wing political protests, including one in Vancouver, Washington, where he was arrested for throwing a smoke bomb, to which he pleaded guilty and did a diversion program, and another protest in the Montevilla neighborhood of southeast Portland, where he dressed as a clown and juggled. When asked about this, Micah said he did so as a kind of protest by whimsy and that he felt, quote, it's just less scary for other people. If I'm able to show up in a way people would laugh at instead of looking intimidating, I would prefer it, end quote. And I feel like that this is kind of the quintessential piece of Micah's personality that I got out of researching this case, that he wanted to take care of other people, both physically and emotionally, from trying to put himself in front of Destiny and Walia and Tilly to asking his mom to call his work so that they knew he wouldn't be in after he was slashed in the neck to dressing as a juggling clown at a protest to be less scary to people. I think it just speaks to a core part of who he is. Pretty much all of the testimony in this trial was gut-wrenching and hard to watch. And this is no less true for the two young women who through no fault of their own were at the center of the events that unfolded. Both had been traumatized and understandably no longer felt safe taking public transit in Portland. But it's not just that. They both said that they no longer feel safe in Portland at all, a city that, had pre that they had previously felt secure living in. Walia stated that she no longer wears her hijab or dresses in traditional Muslim clothes because she fears for her safety. Destiny said that during the attack, she couldn't understand why Christian was telling her to leave the city where she was born and why he would say that she didn't belong here. 
With tears streaming down her face, she testified with, heart, with a heartbreaking mix of bewilderment and brokenness at the unfairness of it all. After nearly four weeks, the trial wrapped up. The jury would deliberate for 12 hours before finding Jeremy Christian guilty of 12 counts relating to the murders of Tilly and Ricky and the near-deadly assault on Micah, guilty of hate crimes against Destiny and Walia, and of a hate crime and assault on Demetria Hester the night before his deadly rampage. The guilty verdicts were delivered in late February 2020. Sentencing has not yet occurred, and since we are all in the middle of a pandemic that has pretty much halted operations in every walk of life, it is unclear when sentencing will occur. Under Oregon law, Christian could potentially be sentenced to what is known as true life, meaning that he will never be eligible for release from prison. Alternatively, he could get life in prison with a 30-year minimum, which could stack up with consecutive sentencing for each count. If the judge goes that way and adds seven and a half years for the attempted murder of Micah Fletcher and more time for the other crimes he was convicted of, Christian would have to serve over 100 years before being eligible for release. In the immediate aftermath of the violence of May 26, 2017, people began flocking to the Hollywood Transit Center, leaving mountains of flowers and candles and using sidewalk chalk to write messages of love and acceptance across the concrete stairs leading up to the train's platform. Here, people scrawled words of condolence for those that were lost and injured, and words of encouragement for Destiny and Walia. Recognizing the deep impact the MAX attacks had on the community, TriMet, the agency responsible for public transit in Portland, convened a tribute advisory committee to incorporate the outpouring of emotion at the Hollywood Transit Center into a more permanent memorial. Artist Sarah Farahat was selected to paint a mural called We Choose Love that covers the 2,000 feet of wall space at the Transit Center. It is bright and beautiful and includes a poem by New York-based duo Climbing Poetry called Awakening, which swirls around the memorial written in a myriad of languages from around the globe. And if you're getting off the train at the Hollywood Transit Center, walking down the steps toward Halsey Street on the south-facing wall of the memorial, you will find a final message from Talishan Namke Meche that says, Tell everyone on this train that I love them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Darklands. It was a tough one to research and write, and I appreciate you being here. Darklands is a bi-weekly podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean. A starred review would be greatly appreciated. Darklands is a free-to-pants production. Feel free to contact me with feedback or story ideas about Pacific Northwest true crime at darklandspodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.